0: In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East." His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, when suddenly... A mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, "'Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. "'The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away.' May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, A man will give all he has for his own life. But now, Stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Uh, wow, um, is Joe here or is she at home? Is she right? Live streaming, perhaps? Joe, magnificent! Thank you. I do recognise your voice, um, and it's beautiful to be able to use Joe's gifts and other people's gifts. In the morning, the children ran, uh, read the scriptures, and so these are good things that we can do from time to time. And so we sit with Job. For eight weeks, nine actually, we've got a little break in between. We're sitting with Job right up until Advent and Christmas, um, and we're sitting with him in order to get up again uh, with Jesus Christ. That's the plan. Amen. That's the sermon. Do you like the length? <sighs> you should be so lucky. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into this passage. Let's do that. Father, we recognize that suffering is a complex matter. We ask why, and we don't, we don't always get an answer and yet we're commanded to trust you, to trust your heart, and we do trust you, we entrust our lives to you. Help us, whatever we're experiencing now, uh, to, to engage with you, to not, not run from you, to, to get the help when needed, the prayers when needed, the friendships when needed. Help us to be the kinds of friends that we can be uh, in, in Christ to those who are suffering. We pray this knowing that your presence is with us in the power of your spirit amen amen lots sure of you don't know this experience but it's quite unsettling to speak to a room of people who are distanced it feels strange anyway that's my problem not yours so we begin a series in the ancient very ancient book of job some say it's the oldest work the oldest literature in the bible it's a book about it is said, about suffering. But it's much more than that. It's about wrestling with God. Suffering, of course, is inevitable for all of us. And when it comes, you've got to ask how it will affect you. Are you ready for it? should it come your way? Or perhaps you're in the middle of some suffering right now. There's a Nigerian poet that once said, and this is a favourite quote of mine, He said, when suffering knocks at your door and you say that there's no seat for him, he tells you not to worry because he's brought his own stool. Suffering knocked on Job's door and sat down. He brought his own stool. And we're going to sit with him in the dust and ashes with his four friends, his four unhelpful friends, in order to get up again with Jesus Christ. Get this? The book is from God, inspired by God, for all who felt ripped off by God. Got to get your mind around such kindness. Dr. Tim Keller, a pastor in the United States, writes this. He writes, the book of Job faces the issue of suffering with more emotional realism. You'll see that. Intellectual integrity, there's some profound stuff here, and practical wisdom than any other book of the Bible uh, or even possibly any other work of world literature. You have suffered, so this book is for you. In many ways you can say by looking at the book of Job that we're standing on holy ground. That said, if you believe that the book of Job is only about suffering, how to suffer well and how to be a friend with someone who is, if you thought the book was only about empathy in suffering, then you'd miss the profound meaning of the book. And you'll see why in the coming weeks. The book does not give you the answer to the question of suffering and so some say it's inherently dissatisfying. But it does give you a resolution. Job gets up out of his dust and ashes. He survives, his faith and his integrity intact, vindicated really for his trust in God, but he does grow And Job has, at the end, what you might call a conversion experience. The resolution at the end of Job has brought hope to millions of people who pray Job's prayers, who've wrestled with the things that Job wrestled with, who've argued Job's arguments, and who've believed Job's vision. I have found a narrative of hope in his pain. It's probably fair to say that My guess is that none of us will experience pain on such levels and this is good news because I could learn through his pain and maybe there's something about Jesus Christ there as well. So we're spending eight weeks sitting with Job asking the question, is there a path through suffering? What will get us up and out of our dust and ashes? Now this is an introduction to the book of Job. It's going to raise more questions for you than answers. We'll have time for two or three questions after this. But we've got eight weeks. We're sitting with Job for eight weeks. My intention is that our reading of the book will be full of hope. If you don't know this book at all, then hold on, you're in, for the, you're in for a ride. It's worth saying that almost everybody in Western society knows something of Job because we've got a phrase. We've got, you have the patience of Job, we say. But the book isn't just about patience. As if, you know, coping is the only thing the book has to say. There's plenty... Uh, more in that. Job's a good man and he loses absolutely everything in a tsunami of pain and he sits down in dust and ashes and he has no idea why it happened. The reader knows why, that's important. We're told in chapters 1 and 2, Joe just uh, read those for us, he suffers for a very specific reason. and he doesn't have access to that reason not at any point during the book and so he prays and agonizes and argues in chapter 3 through 37 that's a lot of words a lot of prayers a lot of arguments he sees no rhyme no reason no method in the madness but he and his four friends all believe there should be they hold that in common that that God is a just god and therefore there should be some answer coming forth uh, from all the suffering. In the end, Job wants God to show up, which is perhaps why it's perfect in the lead up to Advent. He wants God to show up, which God does from verse from chapter 38. I want to answer three questions as a way of getting into Job, uh, just as an introduction. And they're on page 10, if you're taking notes. Firstly, what is dust and ashes? What drove Job there, and what brought him up out of them? What are dust and ashes, what drove Job into the dust and ashes, and what brought Job up and out of the dust and ashes? And this movement, by the way, down and up, into the dust and out of the dust, points us, of course, to Jesus Christ, who is our hope, our way through suffering. Amen? First question, what are dust and ashes? You know, dust, I know what it is, is when you wipe the mantelpiece after being away for, well, I live in the city after being away for a day. Uh, And ashes, of course, is what you have to pick up if somebody drops a cigarette butt near you. You know, you just pick up the ashes. But in the ancient world, of course, there's much richer, much deeper meaning. Dust and ashes in Job's culture are a symbol of pain, of suffering, of frailty, of being near or close to death, close to the ground. It's a place of humility from which one could pray. And to sit among them is not only dirty, and it was dirty, but it's a visible way to own your condition, to signify your grief, and to pray. We don't have anything like it in our culture. I think we're worst for it. Perhaps the closest we get will be to wear black to a funeral, to go to our bedroom and really come out, or be unable to get out of bed or refuse to eat. Dust and ashes are first mentioned in chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan, in the original language, it's the accuser. The accuser went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. I can hardly read it. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself as he sat among the ashes. By the way, there should be a trigger warning on this, you know. Um, and if at any point you feel the need to leave, you feel free to do so. And if you'd like to pray with somebody afterwards, and I'm absolutely sure that Rowan and and uh, Naomi and others would be happy to do that with you. Job's three friends get into the dust and ashes with him, and say nothing, at least initially. Chapter 2, verse 12, when the friends saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him, they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him initially because they saw how great his suffering was. By the way, they'll talk and Lord how they'll talk. Come to them. And then all the way through the book, Job speaks about the fact that he'll soon lie in the dust. 7 verse 21, 17 verse 16, 34 verse 15, and in chapter 30 verse 19, of God, Job says, he throws me into the mud. That's what God does, he throws me into the mud and I am reduced to dust and ashes. In the funeral service that we run here, we say these words, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust the dust, but Job is very much alive and in a lot of pain. But at the end of the book, he arises from his dust and ashes. It takes a lot of time, a lot of words. He endures the suffering, he endures his friend's profoundly unhelpful words, and he's restored. He reclaims in a new way his hope in God, having come very close to the edge. Wait till you see it in chapter 31. He says, oh, that God would show up. Because if he showed up, I could get from him his indictment of me. He could tell me what i had done wrong. And in fact, I would write down on a piece of paper what I've done wrong. And I would wear that piece of paper like a crown, like a paper hat. I would put it on my head. Like a prince, I would approach him. So he comes close to the edge. And yet God says, He speaks the truth about me. He's vindicated. It's his friends who say the wrong thing. Don't you love that? He becomes a model for us. First. Second, what drove Job into the dust and ashes? And the initial answer, the simple one, is true. His suffering drove him there. But there's a deeper answer, and you must hear it. So let's get into these chapters. First. An introduction to Job. Chapter 1, verse 1 In the land of Uz or Uz, uh, there lived a man whose name was Job. We don't know where Uz is or the land of Uz. It gives rise to what sort of literature is this? Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it a play to be read? The ancients put this book in, into the genre of wisdom literature so we could learn. So we could mine for the pearls of wisdom, the nuggets of gold. Remember this at the beginning of the year in chapter, Job chapter 28. We're going to assault the flinty rock with our hands and tunnel through for some wisdom. That's where this book lies, in the canon, in the Bible. Second, Job is, and by the way, I'm so thankful it's there in the canon. Imagine if it wasn't there. Second, Job is an honourable man. Everyone looks up to him. In chapter 29, he says, When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and they stepped aside. And the old men rose to their feet. Indeed, in chapter 1, verse 3, he was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. Third, he worries about his kids. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And who doesn't? Those of us who have them. Your parents worried about you. They did. Job, we discover, sacrifices for them in case they sin, which is an Old Testament practice. We're not going to encourage you to do that. It's a form of prayer, I guess. Fourth, he fears God and shuns evil. The narrator tells us as much in chapter 1, verse 2. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Didn't mean he didn't sin, but he he dealt with his sins properly. He was facing the right direction, asking for forgiveness. The Lord agrees with the narrator. God's observation to the accuser, to Satan, in 1, verse 8 is, "'Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright.' a man who fears God and shuns evil, to which the accuser, to which Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? There's a reason he fears you. There's a reason he loves you. An ulterior motive is what the accuser says. All of that gives rise to the primary conflict in Act 1, Scene 1, to the accusation that Job only loves God. Uh, There's the accusation that that Job only loves God because God has placed a hedge around him chapter 1, verse 10, a hedge around him that keeps him safe in the bubble of things, his greenhouse of happiness, away from any storms. The accusation is that Job is pampered with no suffering, that's why he loves God, he's spoiled. By the way, you could argue that all of us have a hedge around us, things in our life. You could name them that make life enjoyable. What would happen if God stripped you of them, all of them, which is to love him? That's one of the questions that Job evokes. So the accuser offers God a challenge. By the way, you don't have to worry about how it happened, did it really happen? If you do, I think you, it's literature, it's wisdom literature. And the challenge is, of the accuser. If you take away the hedge, the things, the power, the prestige, the Instagrammable stuff, if you take away the Instagrammable stuff, you'll find out that he's just like everyone else. He'll curse you. He'll, 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 he's in it for himself. He'll, he'll fall. He'll fail. So there's only one way to find out if Job loves God for God's sake, and that's to take away everything. So the hedge gets taken away, and so suddenly and inexplicably Job is plunged into suffering. Now the reader, that's us, we know things that Job never finds out, that there's a dialogue in heaven about a hedge. But if you were Job in the story, then the first thing that happens to you in the book, the very first thing is you could see through the window a messenger running up the driveway, a little bit like in this area a hundred years ago. The local priest would go and knock on your door, and if you saw the priest coming your way, you knew that your son, your daughter, was dead in war. The first thing he sees is a messenger rushing to his door. Chapter 1, verse 14, the messenger says, "'The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, "'and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. "'They put the servants to the sword,' And I'm the only one left here, escaped to tell you. And this hits Job like a ton of bricks. But as he's leaving, another person puffs up to the door. Verse 16, sheep and servants are gone. Another person runs up to the door. Camels get taken away, verse 17. And lastly, and most tragically, in verses 18 and 19, a messenger comes and says, your ten children have died in one tragic accident. Now, I know that raises lots of questions, but we've got time. So the hedge is going. It's not gone. It's going. 1 verse 20, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship. Would you? I mean, that's, that's one of the questions you ask in Job. Would I do what Job has done? And he says this, I didn't come from my mother's womb with clothes, and I won't go to a grave with clothes. Naked, I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I will return. The Lord gave a hedge, the things, and the Lord has taken away the hedge, the things. May the name of the Lord be praised. In death or life, may he be praised. Is that something that you feel like you could say or later shall we accept good from the Lord's hand and not also calamity now remember the hedge is going but he remains standing in one verse 22 the narrator says in all of this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing a position he maintains throughout the book even if he comes close like the psalmists in chapter 2 it's like rolls on the accuser comes to God and says skin for skin Chapter 2, verse 4, a man will give all he has for his own life, stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face, you'll discover his ulterior motive. By the way, God doesn't do it, God doesn't strike Job, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, but he allows it. Now that's important, and we'll come back to that in our series as we consider the place of God in suffering. Just flagging that but job is then inflicted with terrible sores and wounds from toe to head and he's got no idea why <laughs> and we're told it drove him to dust and ashes 2 verse 8 and in those dust and ashes chapter after chapter we see job depressed confused angry crying out in prayer arguing with his friends indeed his wife comes along and says the commentators say she becomes the mouthpiece of the satan of the accuser By saying, why are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. You should give God the bird. He seems to give you the bird, you give it back to him. And this is why you need the rest of the book. And two things come out in the chapters, really. Job says to God, one, I don't want to suffer anymore, without explanation. And secondly, I don't want to suffer any more without vindication. Sure, if it's a closed universe, as in there is no God, then I get it. I get it. We're just victims of time and circumstance, and you can hope all you want, but it's just wishful thinking, nice sentiments to get you through life. But in the end, if there's no God, then we are mere rats in the rhythm of a universe that doesn't care. We can help each other along the way, but that's about it. People suffer, and that's all there is to say. But Job and his four friends know that there is a God, a just one. They hold that in common. And so he says, I want to know why I've experienced this. My friends keep saying that there's a solid line between my suffering and my sin. They keep saying that since God is just, I must have sinned that I should suffer in such ways. And he's like, you know what? I'm not perfect. But that that correlation is not there. That line does not exist. And by the way, you must resist that line without revelation. Come back to that in the series. But because he wants an explanation from God and vindication from God, he keeps saying, I want to meet God. I want to have an audience with him. I want him to show up. I want to make my case before him. And as you read on, you realize that the only way that Job can end is for God to show up, which he does in chapter 38. God shows up in a storm and says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself, Job, like a man, and I will question you and you will answer me. So thirdly, what then brought Job up and out of his dust and ashes? I'll tell you what gets me up out of my dust and ashes. Um, Actually, lots of things. I've got lots of resources available, friends. Uh, experiences. Uh, But I, not lying, when I say what gets me up out of my dust and ashes is Jesus Christ, I know it doesn't solve every, especially those who suffer um, uh, suffer in great ways but uh, I hold on to Jesus Christ, his death is my death, his resurrection my resurrection, his life gives my meaning but that Belief in Jesus Christ doesn't negate the pain or the suffering. And by the way, I've experienced suffering as you have, but it might be worth saying that I might not have experienced the kind of suffering or the depth of the suffering that you have, and I certainly might not be experiencing it now in ways that you are now. So all of this is not to say that I haven't, you know, my trust in Jesus Christ doesn't, hasn't meant that I haven't wrestled with God, that I haven't had major moments of, what the heck is going on? I have and I will. And so Job helps me now in the way the psalmists help me now. And Job helps me when the diagnosis of cancer comes my way. And it might. But in the end, Job is restored. He gets up out of his dust and ashes, a sort of resurrection, really. The Lord made him prosper again, 42 verse 10. God blessed him. People comforted him over his former loss. He was vindicated. My servant Job still fears God and shuns evil. And he lived a long life, we are told. And again, lots of questions there, especially about the children. But he was raised from his dust and ashes. God meets him in the crucible, that is his lowest point, and lifts him up. And that's really important for us at the beginning of reading the book of Job because we're looking for a path through the suffering, and you'll need one if you truly believe in God. I think you'll need one even without one a believe in God. Now we might not have dust and ashes, that practice that was very dirty and profound, but we do lie in bed sometimes wondering if we can get up. And we don't have Job's hedge, which was taken away but we have our hedges, and you could name them by the way, those things in your life that are important to you, that if they were taken away, would you would it would you still love God? Would you be stronger? Would you fear him, and serve him more? See, these are great questions. In chapters thirty eight through forty one, Job says in a vision of God. And importantly, in that vision, there's no specific answer to the suffering. No, uh, I mean, God could have just said, okay, 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 um, you know, let me just tell you what happened. All the readers know this, but you don't. There's a little conversation, and I made the claim that you love me for me, and somebody said, he doesn't. And so that's, you know, we, that's what happened, Job. <laughs> but he doesn't get it. And I think it's important that he doesn't get it. It's important for us that he doesn't get it, even if you think it's unfair. Job hears God speaking out of the storm, and God questions him. The questions that he peppers over and over and over again are about creation, about evil, about power. They are playful questions. Very playful, by the way, about ostriches that run and morning stars that sing for joy. And where they stop and start. They're playful questions, and yet they're also profound questions. In the response of God in chapters 38 through 41, there's gravitas, weight, power, but there's also levitas, lightness, fun, even, happiness. God shows that He is, He can, and He cares which prompts Job at the end to say, 42 verse 3, printed in your orders of service on page 9, surely I I spoke of things I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You are greater than I am, and momentarily I forgot that. I can't always trace his hand, but I can trust his heart. But more importantly for us, in chapter 42, verse 5, Job says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So after the hedge has been taken away, after the pain, after the agony, after the wrestle of faith, after the lousy friends, and especially after he's seen the work of God in creation, he says, My ears had heard of you, But now my eyes have seen you. Something profound happens. This is an opening a door for us. I wonder if at the end of this series something profound might happen. Therefore, he says, chapter 42, verse 6, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, the original language of verse 42 is ambiguous and debated among scholars. The word, myself, is definitely not there in the Hebrew, in 42, verse 6. It's a verb, and it's not reflexive. Therefore, I despise, I something. And the preposition, in, is unclear, as lots of prepositions are in those languages. You've got to figure it out from the context. So, he despises something, and he repents of something. One reading, a majority one, the one you probably were drawn to, is that in some form he despises himself. It's like, Oh, woe is me. What was I thinking for what he said in the pain? And maybe you're thinking that he sinned in what he said. And he repents of overstepping the mark in dust and ashes, which is what you do in dust and ashes, because you want to be close to the ground. You want to acknowledge your frailty. There's two difficulties with this reading, even if it's a majority one, a natural one. Uh, One of them is he's already in the dust and ashes. Um, He never got out of them. And secondly is what God says to Job's friends in chapter 42, verse 8, when he says, you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. He never stopped speaking the truth, even if he came close to the edge, like the psalmists. A second reading, and it is a minority reading, no doubt. The second one is that he despises something, namely his arguments, he's rejecting the paper hat comment, and repents of the dust and ashes, not in them, but of them. In other words, he's giving up his, um, his line that is drawn in the sand for God, and, and with resolve, getting up again, getting up and out, repenting of, because you don't have to just repent of sin, right? Repenting of his dust and ashes. So in chapter 42, verse 6, he either gets into the dust and ashes or out of them. For what it's worth, it doesn't matter too much, because he does get out of them. We know that no matter what. Job is restored. He finds a path through suffering. But it begs the question, what would get you out of your dust and ashes, now or in the future? That's what our series is about. And the short answer is, God does. I will lift my eyes to the hills, to the psalmist, whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord. The Apostle Paul writes in that passage printed but not read on page 7, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Um, He makes me more like Jesus Christ, who suffered, an innocent sufferer. No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Facing death all day long, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus experienced pain and suffering too. He is, if I can put it this way, the true and better Job. He too innocently suffered. He suffered because of my sin. That's the line. That's the direct line. My sin, his suffering. Paul writes in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him Self up for us all will he not generously give us all things amen hedge goes still love him the future's in his hands especially eternity he was consigned to the dust of the earth placed in a tomb he experienced death and yet god did not leave him there resurrection is the answer to job's suffering god raised christ up from the dead and restored him for as jesus himself said he is not the god of the dead but of the living I started this by saying, you read Job, it's a little bit of holy ground. But in the end, Jesus Christ is our holy ground. And so we fix our eyes on him. Let me pray, and then I'm going to offer two questions. if One, two. Let me pray. Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, not just Job, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He knew Why? Scorning at shame, he sat down at your right hand. He was vindicated. We consider him who endured such opposition, not just Job, so that we will not grow weary or lose heart. Amen.